And uh, you prepare yourselves for welcoming people in your homes. We call that hospitality, right? You prepare the house to be hospitable. You prepare the yard for the summer bonfire. You, you, you prepare the house for the new decoration, especially for the guests that will come in and, and be amazed of how well behaved your kids are, but they don't know you just fixed the house 35 minutes before they showed up. You, you prep yourselves for medical procedures. You prep yourself for important decisions. For myself, I had to prepare myself for You do all kinds of preparations. You, you, some, some of you just went on, on, on fall break family vacation. You prepare yourselves for that, right? Not only the packing idea, but dealing with the air, airline companies and the, the gas stations and the price of things and the, the rude whatever people you're going to find along the way, right? But here's the point. Uh, life is just full of preparation. It, it, you never stop being prepared for what is next. So as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, he, here's, what, here's what Peter's going to do. He's going to drop a heavy load on us. And, and I really believe it is heavy because he's going to continue on the idea he just exposed in chapter 3 about Christ's suffering, Okay? Now, first, what he's going to tell us today is very countercultural. And what do I mean by that is that we, we actually live in a society that we believe and we want to have our own rights. When we went to the mission field, we bought our first car, and we thought we had all the warranties in the world. And then we literally drove 25 miles away, and the car broke down, and for the next three months, it broke down seven more times, and we said, hey, it's enough. I want my money back. And the guy said, I'm sorry. So it's not only difficult for us because it goes against what our culture tells us, but it, it's hard on the second level because Peter's talking about perspective here. He's, he's telling them how the believers are supposed to live, and if you're like me, you don't want anybody else to tell you how you're supposed to live your own life. But Peter's going to do that, and he's going to do that based on the foundation of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Now, I want you to remember just for a second, since we don't have the idea or the possibility to actually go through 1 Peter verse by verse, and we're all the way at the end of the, the book, I want to give you some, some stuff that's going on here so you know why Peter is saying what he's saying, okay? So here's what you need to remember. He, he's writing to a group of individuals who are, as he calls in, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, he calls them residing abroad, which means that he, they're, they're aliens, they're foreigners, okay? They do not belong to that land. They're being persecuted for their faith. He calls them aliens. He says that they're blessed and chosen and that their trials show the proven character of their faith. Verse 7 of chapter 1. And then he goes on and he challenged them to actually prepare their minds for action in verse 13. And then he says, not only you do that, but you need to understand you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation in chapter 2. And then he does the unthinkable. He says this. He tells them in the midst of their suffering to submit to human authorities. Are you kidding me? Really? But he does. And you do that because God has established human institutions. 
And then he says, not only you do that, but you honor God in your marriage, chapter 3. Now, you can, you, can, you can honor your wife when things are really easy, and you can respect your husbands when things are going really good, but when you're being persecuted for your faith, you need to know that? Yes. And then he says that in the midst of your suffering, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, you need to be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. And then he moves to verse 18 of chapter 3. Let me get your attention to that. Here's what he says. Because Christ also suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God by being put to death in the flesh, but by being made alive in the Spirit. So that's his death and burial. And then in verse 21, listen to how he ends this argument, the, le- the last part of the verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, my foundation, your foundation, is nothing other than Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Everything that we'll see in chapter 4 hinges on the ability of you and I understanding that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is true. Because if it is not, then what he's asking us to do is, is just a moralistic approach to life. And so he's going to argue that suffering is the foundation for standing. And that's, once again, not what you want to hear from me right now. Now, let's go to the text just with me. You have your outline. Here's, here's the first point, and here's what I want you to know. I believe what Peter's going to do now, he's going to do two things, Okay. He's going to tell us that there must be an internal transformation inside of us in order that that transformation will lead us to live a holy life, to live for God's glory. Now, if there's no transformation here, there's no holy living. That's the other side of the coin. So he's going to do what he's going to say. He's going to say you need to establish yourself. You need to be prepared. So the first one is the preparation for standing requires the attitude of Christ. Look at verse 1 once again. So since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude because the one who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. Now, we've seen that the preparation relies on chapter 3, verse 18, right? We understand that. We're not talking about when we look at this and it says that we're supposed to arm yourselves. He's not talking about the second amendment here. He didn't have a second amendment. And even when he tried to establish one in the garden by cutting somebody's ear off, Jesus says, enough. We don't live by human principles. Listen to what Schreiner says, because this is, this is the preparation. You need to arm yourselves. But since it's not a, a Second Amendment issue here, what is it? And he says, to arm yourselves as a military connotation. And in other texts, also refers to the Christian life as a soldier or a warrior. So, so how do we do this? Peter's going to answer that. And, and you have a bunch of bullet points on your, on your outline. And I don't want that to overwhelm you. But I just want to give you some practical things about how internally that needs to take place. So number one, how, how do you arm yourselves? You need to remember Christ's suffering. I notice in the text that he uses the words twice here, suffer in the flesh. One is a reference to Jesus. The other one is a reference to this person that's supposed to arm themselves, okay? So since Christ has suffered in the flesh, you need to do the same. The problem for us is that we don't want to imitate anything that's difficult. We just want to imitate what's comfortable. 
what's easy. I, if you ask somebody, hey, drop and give me 200 push-ups, they'll say, I can only do two, even though they can do 12. We, we hardly want to go the extra mile because we like the convenience of things, right? I think that's why Costco, every time I go there, I see a bit larger TV. Either people are getting really bad eyesight or they just like the conveniency of it. <laughs> but it is true, isn't it? We, we like to be patted on the back just to do the, the, the easy things in life, but we don't want to do anything hard. Like when you ask your kids to take the plate to the kitchen, it's almost like somebody passed away. <laughs> but but, but here, here, here's, listen to this. Here's what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2, verse 20 to 23, he says, For what credit is it if you sin and are mis mistreated and endure it? But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. For this you are called. So you are called. He's saying you are called for these very th same things since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow. Now, here's the example he left you, verse 22 and 23. Listen to this. He committed no sin, nor was the seed found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. That's hard. When he suffered, he did... He, he threatened no retaliation. Really? But he committed himself to God who judges justly. I, I got the privilege to work for my, my best friend's uh, dad when I was a teenager. He had a carpeting company. He had a 1.0 car, and he was able to fit five people in there, like me. And we, we drove, and we're packed like sardines inside of this thing, Okay. But one day he was, he was really mad about this guy who was driving in front of him. And you understand that because you are never wrong. He's always the person in front of you. And he says, I wish I had a laser. And I was like, why do you want a laser for? Because I want to do phew. That's what he did. Now, that's human perspective. He showed no retaliation. So the question that comes up is, why is this important to you? It is important because there's two patterns for you to follow in life. There's the pa pattern established by God himself through the person of Jesus Christ, and there's the pattern that was established after sin. If you neglect the one that's godly, you will have ungodly following. And that's why you cannot remember or forget regret or reject Christ's suffering. So for you to prepare yourselves, you need to remember Christ's suffering, but you also need to do one more thing. You need to respond to God's will. Look to what he says, <clears throat> excuse me, look to what he says in verse two. In verse two, he says this, in that, in the flesh, in that, he, he, he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God and not about human desires. Now, the person here he's talking to is not Christ, okay? He's talking about the person who will suffer, who will imitate Christ's suffering, who will arm themselves to suffer, to understand that suffering is part of life, okay? Now, look at the contrast. This person, 
is going to spend the rest of his life now imitating Jesus, not his own human desires. Now, I thought a little bit about this this week in a, from, from, a, from a, uh, a practical standpoint. And here's, here's what I want to tell you. I want to listen. I want to hear. I want to tell you some things about God's will because usually that's like a mystical thing, right? We have such a hard time identifying what God's will is for my life, and I do too. I go through those those phases where I don't know what God wants for me, but there's some very clear things in His Word. Listen to this: God's will. He wants you to give thanks in all circumstances. First Thessalonians chapter five. That you would be sanctified. First Thessalonians chapter four. That you would be. That you would do good. 1 Peter chapter 2, that you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans chapter 12, that you would repent and believe, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, that you would seek first his kingdom, that Christ would be glorified. And here's the key part, is not always pleasant, but it is always true. It is not always pleasant, but it is always true. God's will looks at others based on what God tells them. It is sacrificial. It hopes. It loves. It cherishes. It makes you look more like his son. But now look at the contrast. Look at, look at the human desire here. It is the will of self. It's me first and you later. It is quick pleasure, short-lived. It looks great in the moment but causes damage later. It loves to seduce. It wants you to Seek your own kingdom. It looks at dreams to be fulfilled for yourself. It promises much but delivers little. It usually damages relationships, destroy, destroy characters. It, promises, it promotes greed, jealousy, envy. It poisons the soul, forfeits hope, and is unable to recognize true love. It makes you look more in the process of preparation, respond to his will. Three, you need to be done with your past. Now, Peter's going to say this in verse 3. Look at it once again. For the time has passed was sufficient for you to do what non-Christians desire. You lived, look at the verbs all the way in the past. You lived then in debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, drinking bouts, and wanton desires. This is an admonition for you not to turn your back to the one who has saved you to do the things that led you away from him. He's contrasting the responding to God's will in verse 2 to forgetting about who you were in the past. Not that that doesn't help because we need to know who we were in order to be able to walk in a godly way, right? God has changed us and we praise him for that. But he's saying you don't, you don't live your life in debauchery, which is behavior to completely lacking in moral restraint, evil desires, drunkenness, now, what you need to know about this is that this is not an extensive list. There's actually 23 of them in the New Testament. What Peter is doing here, he, his intention is not to have a philosophical argument with them, but to give them a reason to stand and to emphasize that in order for them to stand, they must reject the past in order to embrace the present. And this is our fourth point. You need to understand that for you to embrace the present that God wants for you, you need to reject and be done with the things that were behind. Now look at verse 4. So they are astonished when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness and the weird one. You are the weird one. 
Because now you have chosen to prepare yourselves for something that's godly, and the ungodly will say, look at them. And the idea of vilifying here is that someone is going to say something bad about you in order to destroy your reputation. Now, let me ask you a question, and this, this might be provoking a little bit, but let me ask you this. When was the last time somebody said something bad about you because you made a choice that was godly? When was the last time somebody else said something bad about you or tried to destroy your reputation because you made a godly decision? I remember a very painful time in my life. I grew up in a broken home. My dad was a professional alcoholic. And uh, my parents used to fight every day, thousands of times. And so one day, I walked in our dining room, and they were arguing again, which was nothing uncommon. So I, I stood in between them, and I'm, arguing, I'm listening to them argue back and forth about something, and all of a sudden, my mom says, aren't you going to say something? And I said, both of you are wrong. And she looked at me and she says, you have changed. Whew. That devastated me. I had been a believer for six months. As time went by, I realized the world re has rejected my Savior and my mom is an unbeliever, so I shouldn't expect anything different. But listen, they are astonished that Peter's readers have turned their back to what is ungodly and they're walking towards a godly life now. And they're trying not only to persecute them for their faith, but they're, they're, they're vilifying them. They're destroying their reputation. And if you don't get a reputation, you don't get a job. You can't eat. Everybody knows you're the bad guy around the block, that you're doing things that you actually didn't do it, but everybody thinks you're doing that. Listen, Peter has said we are sojourners. We're aliens. I'm a Brazilian by birth. I'm an American by paperwork. But I'm the son of the heavenly God by the blood of Jesus. And so when we have the right perspective, it's easier for us to internalize things and say, I can prepare myself for this because now God is working in my life. Now listen to the last point in this and we're going to move forward. You need to not, not only embrace the present, but you need to believe the future. What he's going to say from verses 5 to 7 to beginning of verse 7 is that there's a judgment that's coming. And because the judgment is coming, you need to do two things. You, not only you don't go back to the things you used to do, but you need to remember that God's going to judge all of us. Even those who are vilifying you. And so he says, listen to verse 6. It says, now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached. And what was the purpose? To those who are now dead. Now, what it means, there's probably some people who heard the gospel, accept the message, turn their lives around because of Jesus, and now they have died. And Jesus saying, God is saying through Peter, this is why I send you. This is why the gospel was preached. 
so that the dead could hear. But you need to remember, there is a future. And the future is coming. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, little children, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may, be, may have the confidence and not shrink away from him in shame when he comes back. Now, let's move to the second part of this, this message, where Peter's going to give us four practical steps, I believe, in which preparation to stand is foundational to the Christian living for God's glory. Now, we, we talked about internalizing this. Now he's going to put things into action, okay? It's like, it's like you get your car ready for racing, and now you just have to step inside and learn how to drive and step on the gas, right? You've done all the preparations for that moment. Now you need to step on it. You need to apply certain things. And here's the first thing he's going to say. Preparation to stand for, for, for God's glory requires prayer and constant prayer. So pray consistently. Look at, listen to what he says in verse 7. So be, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. Now, this is really interesting because this, the word self-control and sober-minded here pretty much carry the same idea. One is having sound thinking, which is self-control. The other one for sober-minded is the idea of just clear, uh, uh, clearly thinking about the things that are in front of you. So what he summons them to do is to have a, pre, a, a personal preparation in order to stand. And the implication here is that self-control and sober-minded will be part of one that will motivate you to pray. Now, Schreiner explains way better than I could, and I'm going to read this statement to you. The nearness of the end, which is the judgment that is coming, has led some believers to lose their heads and act irrationally. On the contrary, believers should think sensibly as they contemplate the brevity of life in this world. Those who know the outline of history are able to, act, to assess the significance of the present. Their sensible and alert thinking is to be used for prayer, for entreating God to act and move in the same time in the time that, that still remains. The realization that God is bringing history to close should provoke believers to depend on him, and in this dependence is manifested in prayer. For prayer, believers recognize that any good that occurs is only due to God's grace. Bounds says that what the church needs the most today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but man whom the Holy Ghost can use Men of prayer, men of integrity. The Holy Ghost does not flow, listen to this, through methods, but through man. He does not come on machinery, but on man. He does not anoint plans, but man, men of prayer. Now, the, the aspect that the Lord is coming and as Peter says in verse 7, that it's near, needs to motivate us to pray even more. So your preparation for holy living or for Christian living requires you to pray constantly. But not only that, it requires you to love one another. Now, you are very familiar with John 13, 35, which Christ says, everyone will know my disciples by what? By love by the love they have for one another. And at the same time, 
Peter's going to use this in verse 8. Listen, listen to what he says. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent, because love covers a multitude of sins. So he says, not only you pray, but above everything else you love. Now, we felt extremely loved by you about two months ago when we were going through COVID. You loved our family. You showered us with your blessing. You, you motivated us with your love to continue to persevere every morning, every afternoon, every evening when things were not very easy. But that's what he says. Love is a priority. Love must be from pure heart. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. It says, You have purified the truth in order, to, in order to show sincere, mutual love. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love can be the means of forgiveness. And that's why in, in James chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, Listen, he should know that the one who turns a sinner back from his wandering path will save that person's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, this is not talking about you having the ability to save anybody. This is talking about the person who brings the gospel to the other person in love and the gospel will change the person in order that they will change from their path of destruction to their path of holy living. So you need to love Jerry Bridges has this very profound statement. He says this, love binds together all virtues of the Christian character. Love's not so much a character trait as 